Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, episode 139. Today, we're honored to host an incredible guest, Professor Alan Shabaro a fourth-degree jiu-jitsu black belt, a decorated military veteran, co-founder of the nonprofit We Defy Foundation, and a dedicated coach who has made a significant impact in the martial arts community. Earning his black belt from Carlos Machado in 2004 and currently ranked under Professor Chris Howder, Allen is the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in the Special Forces Regiment. During his deployments in Iraq, he trained a wide range of elite operators from U.S. Army, Special Forces, and Rangers to Navy SEALs in Marine Force Recon, proving the effectiveness of jiu-jitsu in real-world situations. Back in Texas, Ellen has continued to make a difference by training law enforcement professionals, including the FBI hostage rescue team and federal law enforcement in law enforcement defensive tactics. With a neighboring commitment to his students, Alan not only trains top athletes of all ages and backgrounds in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and submission wrestling, but also imparts the valuable lessons he learned while actively competing in national and international competitions. Alan's passion for growth and excellence extends beyond Jiu-Jitsu, as evidenced by his foray into Olympic weightlifting in 2012. Within a year, he placed second at the 2012 USAW Masters American Open and set two states record at the 2013 USAW Texas State Championship. Join us for this interview where we delve into the remarkable life and experiences of Professor Alan Shabaro and explore the available lessons he has to share with us all. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the nonprofit We Defy Foundation. Enjoy the interview right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Us. Do you believe that Jiu-Jitsu has the power to change lives and make the world a better place? Unfortunately, millions worldwide don't have access to jiu-jitsu because they are unaware of its existence or cannot afford it. That is where the Adopt-A-Social Project program comes in. This program, created by the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, supports social projects worldwide that offer free jiu-jitsu classes in their at-risk communities. These projects inspire, impact, and improve lives by utilizing jiu-jitsu as a personal and social development tool. Anyone can support this program with a 12-month commitment. Whether you own a jiu-jitsu academy, association, business, or individual, you can help make a difference. Join us in supporting the Adopt-A-Social Project program and help us bring the power of jiu-jitsu to those who need it most. Visit our website to learn more about how you get involved. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, inspiring, impacting, and improving lives one tribe at a time. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, when was the last time when we met? Was in Texas. I don't remember the year. What do you say? Like almost ten years ago or something? I don't know. Um, I think it was twenty twenty fifteen. 
2015. You had started with the uh, the BJJ mental coach. You yes. came out with that DVD and you were doing a tour around. And that's I attended one of yours. Cool, awesome. So yeah. I'm glad to to catch up and people that maybe who are listening who are not familiar with you and people who are familiar with your name get to enjoy the conversation. And we're going to talk a little bit of all different topics. And first, man, just tell us how martial arts got into your life. I don't know if you got exposed to anything prior to jiu-jitsu. So let us know. Um, people always get a chuckle out of this. So growing up in, um, like in high school, even the time frame that I was in the military until I was about 22, uh, I was 145 pounds, walking around six foot one. So I was really, really, really thin. Going, uh, growing up in overseas in Europe and Middle East didn't have very many martial arts school availability. So when I came to the States and I joined the Army, um, not even a year after I came to the States, uh, when I got to my duty installation, which uh, my first uh, station was at Fort Hood in Texas. That's how I ended up in Texas. The, um, the surrounding area had various different martial arts. And since I didn't know anything about it, I would jump into one, test it out, give it six, eight months, you know, try to really, you know, get a, a at least a fundamental idea of what the martial art was about. I was always drawn to something where um, you could use the technique to uh, counteract the size of your opponent. And Every one that I went to, my first one, I think is a Kuksul Wan variation of Taekwondo, uh, Hapkido, um, Jing Saido, um, uh, what was the other one? Um, Wing Sun, Wing Chung, and all of those, it was probably about a year and a half, maybe almost two years that I was kind of dabbing into them. There were some I didn't last as long. Uh, one of the Wing Chun places, you know, they had us literally for about 30 minutes catching paper for like reflexes. One mm -hmm. partner drops it, the other one catches it. That was my last day there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel that it was, it was very much an exploratory time trying to find something that fit for me, something that would be efficient for my size, that the technique would counter my opponent's size and strength. Yeah, ended up with um, Jing Saido, which was like their own blend of martial arts that also included Brazilian ground fighting. Mm. Now, the instructor had been to one seminar, so he knew, I think, like three techniques or four techniques that he got from the seminar. And that was about it. But that was enough to kind of get me hooked on it. So I ended up going to um, a place in Colleen. That they were literally training in the back of a youth or a uh, what was it um, like a youth center, or a community center, basketball courts, little bleachers, and we'd fold out the mats and we'd train there at the end of the session, fold those blue mats back, got little gymnastic mats, and then storm away. There was a um, a guy that that was there was about 125, 130 pounds, smaller than me, so I was like. I got this. I, I got my three moves. You know, I have more of an advantage. And we did one one session, uh, rolled around about five minutes, and he caught me with the same arm bar from the guard 
like three times in a row. And at the end of the session, I was like, I was so confused and perplexed how he was capable of doing that so, so many times. And I, I just, how did you do that? Just tell me. He's like, well, I really know. It's the only thing that I know. That was it. That was it. <laughs> you know, that was the only technique that he had learned. That was the only thing that, that he was only been there for a couple of weeks. So he only got that down, but it worked efficiently. And he was smaller than me. So that was hook, line, and sinker. I was I was done. From that, um, I continually started going. What year was that? Around that uh, around what time? 1996. Okay. So keep in mind there was uh I think there were, at the time there's two black belts in the state of Texas. There was Carlos and then there was another guy in Houston. And he had just gotten there. Carlos had been established there for a few years already. Uh, this is when he was still teaching out of the uh, uh, Walker Texas Ranger set. Um, didn't even have his own facility yet. And I was actually there the opening day that he had it. So I started training and uh, in uh, in Colleen. And then I went to school at uh, Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, which is probably about two hours south. But I continually start, kept driving up so I could continue training, and I felt that was, like, too much. So I went from uh, – when I came off active duty and was going to go to school, I transferred schools up to the University of Texas at Arlington. And I was just driving an hour and a half to Carlos's every day, which was fine with me because at least I got to train. I couldn't get enough of it. I was training on average 11, 12 times a week. And there was there was just so much out there, and there was no other access to it at the time. I was actually just talking to someone about that. There was no, you know, nothing online. There was no, you know, techniques that you could share. There wasn't a, such a vast community of uh, different types of games that could be played, and 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 variation on techniques. This is when, you know, this was still big into you know you stay with your own gym and, and you don't train with anybody else. It's it's not looked out. Um, it's looked down upon if you do. So it was very limited, but even then, because of the sport itself and the vast amount of techniques and, and different possibilities that it offered, it was it was still addictive, more so than I can ever describe. Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, I kept training. I was a white belt for two and a half years, <laughs> and um, pretty much anywhere that I went, like if there was jujitsu place. All right, now now we're buddies. We're good. So it was really good, not just for you know the techniques and and the sport itself, but the social aspect was another thing that drew me to it as well. Same likeness of mind, same understanding that you know we're we're here to hurt each other to an extent. It's a controlled environment, and so having that that trust in a partner, I think that was another key thing that I, I think is often overlooked in in the sport is the amount of trust that you have within a gym and it's and it's absolutely necessary the um the time frame i was with carlos um i was from with him i moved up in 99 to dallas when i started to go to school there and i ended up uh, continually training with them competing um as a blue belt competing as a, brown, a purple belt up to brown belt and then um after 9 11 uh, I was in 9-11, I was still a blue belt. I made the transition from being in the reserves back into active duty and I ended up moving to North Carolina. 
So there was a little bit of a break there, but I still kept it up, was teaching people. Um, I got my black belt just before I left. And I was mainly focusing on training uh, the other the guys on my team, the other guys on other teams, anyone that wanted to actually jump in and train. That's, you know, that's pretty much what I was there for. And I continued training people while I was while I was in. Um, this allowed me to get a really good base and understanding of, of coaching. So by the time I got out, that was I already had planned on that open up my school and 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 starting from there. And um, so I got out in 2010 and opened up, you know, the gym started out as tier one training facility. And then I partnered up with Chris Howder um, about six years later and it's been stable ever since. Beautiful, dude. So let's go back to uh, when you started jujitsu in 96. Um, I feel, well, each person joins a now like talking nowadays, like, each one have their own reason why they're joining the school. You know, there's a the common like, oh, man, I want to learn how to defend myself. I want to get a better shape, you know. Um, but one of the things that people don't realize is that mental, the emotional aspect of jujitsu, you know, until they're actually in um, that. And as you mentioned, the community, how long did you, it's tough because when you're starting, you don't realize, but maybe reflecting when you started, how long did it take until you noticed some like, personal changes because of jiu-jitsu do you have like a, a clue of like how long did it take so i i when i was coming up i didn't realize this i realize this now but the very first instructor to have wasn't carlos it was somebody else and i learned such a great deal from that person on how what not to do okay. um this is the the these are the people that give jujitsu a bad name type thing. So when I left that and actually went to the, a good environment around Carlos's place, which actually was a much better environment, that's when I really started realizing it. And I realized it not even about six, seven months in, less than a year. And it was very tight cohesion, entirely different from the last place. It was a lot more controlled. It was a lot more open. It wasn't so secretive. When, when you have the instructor that's teaching a technique that he literally got off a of videotape the night before, and when you have questions regarding that, and he responds with, you know what, that's a good thing for a private. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the type of person you don't want to be around because you can clearly say, you see that it's, it's, he, has, he possesses knowledge that you want, and he's going to try to monetize off of it. And that's his only intent. I can honestly say, you know, of course, it's a business, even with Carlos, but the environment that he created wasn't just money. It was the sport as well. And so I took these lessons and I, and I realized that this is exactly not how one run it. <laughs> and, you know, take the, the, the pros from all the different people that I was meeting along the way and, and, and trying to combine all the good things as much as I could to create a solid environment more than anything else because that's what i felt was lacking the most when i was coming up and i realized that leaving that that toxic environment honestly six maybe seven months in at most and how do you feel jujitsu relates to life after so many years training what are some good correlations that you you think of 
Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a big one. Like different ones. Um, the aspect of, you know, the difficulty and the consistency is definitely, definitely a big one. The, the difficulty of it, if you're, especially if you're driven to problem solve, if you're there to understand, you know, concepts and apply concepts to a, uh, from a, a non-material to material world type and putting it to work and having your body move as much as your mind. I think that was probably one of the, the biggest things that really kind of like tied everything in the, the, the cognitive ability and the physical ability together to make things work. Because one of the most common things that you hear, especially from white belts is my mind is saying what to do. My body's not doing it mm. right. You know, no matter what the technique is, you have to adjust your body to move as how your mind wants to move. So I think that was definitely one of the things that, that, uh, was the key factor in it that related to the different things, but the the understanding that if I continue, regardless of the difficulty, I, I I can make it through, and that really helped me out, especially going through special forces assessment and selection. I realized that when I was a white belt, looking up at a black belt. And I just saw them as like wizards, you know, they were just so above, you know, they could do things that I couldn't even possibly fathom. They understood things that I couldn't even understand and, and, and never felt that I could. So these tasks, these monumental tasks that you look, that you create, these, these, these irrational thoughts that you'll never be able to achieve, you know, slowly start crumbling away and dissolving away. And you start to see right past that hill, you start to see, or that, that mountain turns into a hill, that hill turns into a little mound, and then you're walking over it. So one of the key aspects for me was, I knew that the last week of selection was the hardest. It was one event after another. It wasn't that one event could anybody that's in decent shape and has a decent drive of wanting to succeed, I feel can pass any one of the events that the last week, the hardest week of selection offered. The problem is, is that it's not one event. It's one event after another, after another, after another, after another. And that's what breaks down people. It's very similar to the life aspect as well. Maybe not in, in combined into one thing, but you have one problem that presents itself and it just looks, how am I going to get past this debt? How am I going to get past, you know, you know, the, the decisions that I made? I made a mistake. And you're able to correlate that to... Well, you know, I was thinking about that yeah. and I've never been able to do, you know, this or that, um, but I, I'm able to actually understand it better and realize that when I was in, in that position as a lower belt, the things that I was looking at seemed impossible. I couldn't do that. But when I correlated it together, like, yeah, I made it there. And then I went from, from understanding it to comprehending it fully, understand mm -hmm. the concept and breaking it down the same way I was doing a technique and realizing this is more of an irrational thought than it is rational. I'm, I'm making it more difficult than I need to be because I thought the exact same thing back then. And that really helped me out make it through selection because I knew that if I could make it as a black belt, make it through all those challenges, those painful, physical, and mental, emotional challenges, that I could make it through anything. And that was my one thing to like really hold on to that I'd never quit. 
because the difficulty in jujitsu was overwhelming. But the challenge is what I appreciated about it. I never would have stayed in jujitsu if it didn't offer a challenge. And it's a challenge every day. You learn something new every day. That's that's the most amazing part about the sport more than anything else. You can learn something new every day. That's the crazy part. <laughs> Sorry. So when was the first time you got exposed to jujitsu in a military? Um that is, you saw them teaching, you know, like, oh, okay. No, 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 this is way before that. So they even start, so they had, um, so they had two different um, things that were going on. That lines training, which was, you know, grab, twist, pull. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't make this up. <laughs> and that was for like special operations, but it was old, like 80s type, you know, um, not pre-Krav Maga, pre-Jiu-Jitsu. You know, oh, we're going to gouge out eyes and then we're going to like, and then the hurricane and just, and then we're going to beehive. And it was just, <laughs> man, it's so difficult to try to comprehend. And, and it was hard at the time. I was just a, what, a blue belt. Um, when I, when I went to drill sergeant school uh, in 2000 and they were just introducing jujitsu and I was literally just a, <laughs> I was the shark in a little tiny pond, tiny, yeah, tiny, tiny pond, nothing but goldfish. <laughs> so it gave me a lot of comfort because I was also very young. I didn't um, have that much time in the military as, as some of the, my peers, but I felt my, my confidence because I could accomplish that one task and I was very good at it, gave me that confidence to build it up and, and stay within it. Um, so... Yeah, go ahead. Because I want to know, like, when did it start to get to a point of you getting involved to even like, okay, start training people and everything? Um, that actually came more into, I mean, don't get me wrong. Once we actually like we had that class and people saw that I was I was doing it well, you know, I started trying to teach in here and there. Um, when I was um, actually when I went to Southwest Texas State, they didn't have any jujitsu there. So I started a judo club and just taught jujitsu because <laughs> um, I, didn't, I didn't know any judo at the time. and there weren't any tournaments. So it was really difficult. So the only thing that we could really do that was something similar was judo because they had the Nawaza. So there was more judo places to go train. And so I found myself kind of teaching there a little bit too, you know, um, even as a blue belt, I was teaching black belts because at the time, especially the, the judo community didn't have a very good ground game. And when, when I actually went back in active duty NSF, is where I really had the most amount of uh, of of teaching to different crowds. We had different different groups that would show up. You know, I'd be there in the morning, roll out the mats. People willingly just jump in because it was that type of mindset where they they you know the aggressive, combative thought process that's involved in jujitsu, as well as being very difficult physically. And you can really get out. You know really go hard physically in that controlled environment without people getting hurt if it's done right. And so I started developing, you know, the jujitsu uh, into a combatives program, which I later ended up uh, designing a um, close quarters, uh, uh, excuse me, close quarters combat and using jujitsu to like get off the ground, weapon, weapon retention. And when I got to my unit, I ended up starting to teach when I was downrange, when I was in Iraq, I was teaching 
all different types of branches of special operations that were on our base. Um, we had the budget to bring in mats and nice. I mean, it was great when, um, there was, there was just, there was more acceptance in that there, um, just because we're around that environment, that combat environment. And I think that's really what kind of clicked with those guys as well. Now finding the, the, the people to have that same mindset in the U S I think is, it's a little bit different, but it still goes along the same way. There's different reasons for different people getting involved in that sport, of course. And if you can just kind of tap into that and let them recognize that it will benefit them in the ways that they're talking about and the ways that they think it will, it, en it encourages them to stay in and stay longer, especially for the long term. So when you mentioned that you got mats and everything, you got funds for that. Was it an optional thing, you know, for people to know, like, yo, we're doing this here. Whoever wants to come, we're going to uh, jujitsu. Did a yep. lot of people embrace the idea? How did it go? Um, it was literally half and half. There was really no like, ah, it was like, yes, I'm definitely in or mm -hmm. I'm not doing that gay shit because mm -hmm. they didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is still when, you know, UFC people were still yawning out, you know, kick his ass, sea bass, you know, mm -hmm. not understand the ground game. So there's still a lot of apprehension about getting involved because the the, the efficiency of it is is hardly seen, and I think that's the hardest thing also because it's not flashy, it's not Krav Maga with these yeah. big strikes and big kicks and big twirls and you know these kung fu actions. It's very, very, very much much more minuscule movements that make a massive difference. Um, you know, I try to explain, you know, when, when people are trying to watch jujitsu tournaments and, you know, the highest level, everyone's thinking how exciting, and there are some exciting moments, don't get me wrong, but when you hear the whole crowd just uproar because he got his knee over his thigh, when you don't know what's going on, you're like, what? Oh, yeah. What's the big deal about that? He just got his knee over his thigh, you know, but everyone else knows he's one step closer to passing, you know, and, and that's the game. So it's, it's one of those things where you, the understanding of it, I think, um, would definitely, and as time progressed and became more popularized, we definitely had a, a better, by the time I got out, was entirely different um, uh, want and need than when I got in. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. When was the moment that you noticed a shift? Because for me, I've been here in the U.S. since January 1999. I felt uh, a shift, at least where I'm at in Arizona, it was after the Ultimate Fighter in 2004. That brought a lot of attention. And I remember our school was an MMA school, and we never, uh, from 2000, 2004, we never broke 100 people. It was like 80 students. People really didn't know. No one talked much about it. Of course, online wasn't big. But, man, after that Ultimate Fighter started, like, picking up, you know, like people asking, and then we started to grow what do you think around what time did you notice a change, a shift as far as like acceptance in the military? Like, yo, are we going to implement this? People start getting more curious. When did you notice that? So I believe in 2003, 2002, 2003 is when they actually came out with the official combatives program, which was jujitsu based. Now, um, Matt Larson is the one that created that that program, and I think he did wonders exposing it. 
Um, I, I do feel that it was there could have it could have been done a lot better in the sense of they try to simplify it so much so that everyone could understand, but they simplified it to the extent where you're missing all the key components and details that are absolutely needed. Uh, Armbar from the guard, I think, was taught in four moves. Um, and then they developed a program of train the trainer. So a person that has one weekend um, is combatives level one. Uh, two weeks is the level two. Um, the next one, I think, is two months, level three, and then four months, level four. And in a lot of like the level three, level four was how to run tournaments, how to organize tournaments, how to be the referee, how, you know, where are you going to have your mat space? How much space do you need? So it's more like organization than anything else and, and how to build it in the unit. And it was good stuff. Don't, and I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, especially for the first program, it was done well. But I think it was done too soon where they didn't work out all the other things because what they ended up having was a high rate of injuries. And you can't have that in the military because it's really looked down upon. So is it the sport itself? Or is it how it's implemented in the people that are teaching? Because then you had the combatives level two that had three weeks total training teaching the one week guys. So a white belt teaching a white, a two week white belt teaching a one week white belt is, is just a recipe for disaster. And they slowly started phasing it out. And that was my biggest fear was to take something that's, that is absolutely necessary for, for people in military law enforcement, anyone that actually has to have a confrontation, physical confrontation of some sort, it's a necessity because you don't always want to resort to your, you know, your primary or secondary weapon first. You want to be able to de-escalate before it gets to that. And I feel they just, it, it was missing. It was, it was missing from that. They try to rush the program saying, hey, you can learn it like this. You won't forget it. And it was too much of a sales pitch. It started out great idea. It just wasn't implemented right. I feel. So I'm sorry, my ignorance. I know with, like, like law enforcement, they use uh, jujitsu often. You know, to control people in the military. I don't know what position you guys to expose to actually utilizing in combat. Did you did you have situations that you had to rely on jujitsu? Very much so. Um, no. So. A big part was uh, gathering intel, intelligence from from different people that we captured. And it, it's war, but we still have rules of engagement. We're not going to beat the shit out of somebody, you know, and then take them in. It, it's we have to be it's called puck the person's under control. So kind of arresting techniques so we can bring them in and interrogate them from there. Um, there's. There's always the 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 rules of engagement that are in place that we follow that are, are adhered by greatly if not you're a war criminal and nobody wants to do that and so being able to understand you know the 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 escalation of violence mm. not someone's yelling to shoot them <laughs> you have to be able to know that same escalation and it was it was brought up a lot in the special operations units but I think the big army definitely needed to know that even more so because they're involved with that as well. I think it could have, if it was implemented sooner and better um, in a more serious manner, I think it could have actually 
done a lot more good um, just because of the perception. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if the cops, you know, are just punching the crap out of somebody versus just holding them down. It's an entirely different percep perception of how we run things and how units are actually supposed to go versus how they, they were handling situation. And I think the confidence of knowing that you know what to do in that search situation changes the entire agenda drastically. The entire the entire scope changes because you have the the knowledge and the ability to be able to de-escalate without using lethal force, and that's what we're always trying to do. I mean, of course, it, you know, not when they're attacking you or anything, but I'm saying if if you're in that situation where they're unarmed, the last thing you want to go in there and shoot somebody that's unarmed because that's a war crime. Uh, there are also a lot of times where they just they weren't very compliant, so instead of beating them up, in which had happened before, people were actually understanding, I can get through the situation faster and easier if I just do the A, B, and C, take it to the ground, puck from there, time up, okay, let's go. Got it. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about uh, With the Five Foundation, how that came about, what was the inspiration behind it? You're one of the co-founders? Yeah, so how did it come about? What was the inspiration behind it? So Joey Bozik is a triple amputee. He came into my gym in 2015, uh, or excuse me, 2014, uh, with his daughter, trying to sign up his daughter for the kids program. And what attracted him to my place was the name. The tier one um, in the military sense is different than the, the, the general colloquial use you know, like for landscaping, you know, tier one landscaping. But I had a little bit of a, you know, I wanted to kind of show a military background without it being overwhelming. So when he came in, we started talking. He was a wheelchair. And I was like, hey, man, how'd that happen? You know, and they said, oh, I was in the army. And I was like, hey, me too. He was like, well, I was a brag. Hey, me too. All of a sudden, you know, we're doing karate in the garage. So we started talking for like an hour. And, you know, he was telling me he was in Iraq, um, how he lost his legs and his arm. And, you know, he's bringing his daughter, trying to get her in, you know, for self-defense. And the big thing about this was during this conversation, we knew some of the same people. We were in some of the same spots. And I, I just out of curiosity, I wanted I like, did you ever do martial arts, you know, when you were Paul? <laughs> When you had your limbs and and he was like, yeah, I was involved in this. I was involved in that, you know, more on these stand up, you know, traditional uh, karate and Hapkido. And he wanted he actually did try jujitsu after he he lost his legs and his arm. The problem was, is that people were more than happy to take his money. But when it came to trying to get him to understand how he can adapt himself for the sport or adapt the sport to him, they didn't want to take the time. So if they're teaching, he, was, he remembers, um, I remember him telling me about one of the, the situations about le learning full mount. And how are you going to tell somebody that has no legs, figure it out how to control somebody in full mount? It, it doesn't make any sense. So it was a bit impulsive, but at the same time, I'm like, listen, I'll be patient with you. You got to be patient with me. I've never done this. Let's give it a try. Come on in. And, you know, I said, you know, come on in on Tuesday, let, let's, let's get together and, and see what we have to work with. I can't promise anything, but I'll try. Right on. So he came in, 
um, that weekend, I, I had uh, my little notebook. I had eight pages, front and back, different things I wanted to try. After that first session, I scrapped six pages. I had two pages to work with. Try to understand his base. Try to understand his reaction, how long he can stay on his limbs, because the his femurs were made out of titanium. His the muscle was the muscle flap was over the the metal, and he had one leg longer than the other. His left arm he had only so much uh, mobility in his wrist, and only the the first his thumb and his uh, um, two fingers were capable of, of actually having a strong grip. His center of balance was off, very difficult to understand, but it was a huge challenge and another challenge, which was something I got excited about. Uh, and don't get me wrong, you know, teaching after 15, 16 years, you know, there's definitely challenge in that, but this was light years away from anything that I ever even thought of. And I got really excited about it. I was really happy. And and after that first session, you know, I was like, hey, you see, it's funny. Like, yeah, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. He's like, well, uh, I was like, I'll see you tomorrow. Or, I'm sorry, Thursday. I'll see you Thursday. And he's like, oh, okay. So he shows up on Thursday. We'll keep working on it again. He's getting a little bit more excited. So we do that for a few months. And I was like, you ready to jump into the group class? So jumped into the group class. And that social aspect of it, that, that interaction, that I have a skill set too, you saw in different light. He was a completely different person. He was he was yeah. motivated. He was there early. You know, he didn't want to leave. He wanted. He kept asking questions. What about this? What about that? What can I do for this? How about like this? And how about stand up? How about takedowns? How about reverse? And it was just okay. Slow down. Let me let me take this down. Let me figure this out. And I, one of the biggest things I, I can't I, I certainly can't take all the credit. I had a, a wealth of of black belts that I knew that were also willing, willing and able. Um, I got together with uh, Octavio Cotto. Um, I got together with Kenny McClure a lot of times. Um, anyone that was kind of interested in that, I'd bring them in like, hey, what do you think about this? How about that? What do you think this would work? So start piecing together other people because, you know, different variation of things come from different minds and different styles. And well, let's see if it works. So, so much trial and error. And to the point where he was so confident, I want to compete. It's like, okay, so, um, and I was thinking to myself, his initial reason for being there was for self-defense for himself and his daughter, protect his family. And I was thinking to myself, well, if you go and compete against, and I'm, let me preface with this, I don't find anything wrong with with the uh, adaptive competitive, you know, excuse me, competition scene where you have amputee versus amputee. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm, I love that. I, I it's incredible, but to me, it, it takes away that controlled environment that you get to test out what you would actually do against an able-bodied person, and that's what he's training for. So, but before I even got to say it, he was like, "I want to compete at IBJJF," and I was I didn't know how to tell him that they don't have an adaptive one there. So he's like, "Against it," and I was like. I don't have to have that conversation. Great. Let's do that. Six months later, he did the Houston Open. He lost his first match, scored four points, lost on points, not by submission. I was happier than pig and shit. That was, you know how it is coaching. You, 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 you absorb the emotion. You absorb the stress, the anxiety that your competitors are going through. 
this was 10 competitors wrapped up into one. I bet. I was sweating. My back was sweating. I was so nervous about that. It just, but the overwhelming feeling of gratification and, and was just astounding. And I was, I couldn't have been happier. He took that and ran with it. We got to the gym the next day uh, or that next week. And we were both almost like, you know, like, He's lost 37 pounds. He's got a whole new aspect on life. He's addicted. He has a, he, he feels like he had a purpose. What can we do to share that with other vets? How can we get this out? How, how can we put a program together? Sat down together. Neither one of us had ever done anything nonprofit. Um, didn't know the, the, the rules, the regulations, the legalities. That was such a, Ugh, that was probably one of the hardest parts of doing this was trying to figure out how we're going to organize it. You know, how's it structured? You know, who does what? Where does the funding go? Um, how do we draw money? How do we take man money? You know, if it's a 501c3, can we charge people this? Or do we have to put donations only? Little things like that, but none of us knew. And we got lucky. We had people that that knew something about this part and the other person knew something about that part. We put them together and then little by little, we started putting together. So it was a slow start. And learned a lot of lessons. Uh, we had a waiting list for like 500 people, but no funds. The only time that we we're actually going to, um, and, and getting money in was doing seminars. And little by little, started bringing more people in, getting the word out. Um, last year, we brought in 850,000 in one year. Wow. Um, 700 athletes have been through the program. Um, almost over 500 affiliates nationwide. It's grown exponentially. It's been incredible. That's incredible, man. Now, explain a little uh, more, especially people don't know. I don't know how to work. You said, like, uh, raise money, have, you know, people who are you guys sponsors. So how does, how does it work for a school to be affiliated? And how exactly the person to go about taking classes there? Awesome. The, uh, the affiliation program that we have is set up to uh, any jiu-jitsu school that has uh, a black belt that is, is teaching, um, they can uh, apply for the uh, affiliate. We have a legal pay. If they're a brown belt, we have a, a waiver uh, as long as there's someone kind of overseeing them. So it, we do have to have the necessity to have a black belt there, but we do have waivers for brown belts. <clears throat> and we have to make sure that the, the facility is ADA compliant uh, bathrooms, the wheelchair uh, accessibility, and we do a, a preliminary, just a background check um, to make sure that no major red flags coming up, anything like sexual abuse, sexual assault, anything like that, we nix out right away. Um, any convictions for like drug charges for, you know, hey, it's, it's not for us. You know, I'm not saying we don't go out and call people out, things like that. It could have been 10 years ago. But we, we exit right there and just say, it's not what we're looking for. Uh, we try to protect because we have people that already have, uh, the majority of the people have the uh, mental issues, the, the, the PTS, uh, the trauma, the anxiety that's developed from that. And the last thing we want to do is put them in an environment where they're worried about that even more. So we take a lot of care in, in, in trying to do the initial assessments and then and vetting out the schools. The, of course, the legal paperwork, you know, to make sure. And we always stay separate away from any affiliation um, bias. So 
we have Gracie Baja, we have Alliance, we have Combat Base. Um, excuse me. We have Combat Base. We have um, every small affiliation from Renato Tavares to, that's not, not small, but Renato Tavares, but, you know, to, to you know, the, um, um, excuse me, uh, just smaller affiliations all the way through. No biases. We, we don't take sides. It's just a program there developed for the the veteran to come in, you know, get the help that he needs, you know, through the social aspect and, and being able to physically and mentally do something that gives him some type of purpose to be able to reintegrate back into society after, after combat. Um, as far as the athlete, um, they, did he join the group class like a beginner sorry? fundamentals? Did he join like a fundamentals class or beginners class or a specific program for yes. them? So it's case by case. If we have, uh, like for example, a an amputee that says, "Well, I'm not comfortable going to group class. We'll pay for privates," um, and until they get comfortable. Um, now we only have certain funding that can go so far. So normally, I think it's uh, six sessions, private sessions, so they can have a basic understanding in order to be able to go into the group class. Um, we have to, you know, address the, the, the athletes, um, situation when they come into the instructor, like, for example, we've had some sexual assault women that were also in combat and, you know, we have to say, Hey, it's probably best if you have a women's class starter out there, you know, kind of get our understanding about the, you know, the, the, the pressure and the, the uncomfortableness of being with a stranger and pressure it's probably not a good idea to put them with a male and so we we try to we don't dictate what they have to do but we have concerns that we'd like to address and that's how we kind of present it but it's their school in the, in, in the first place and we, we try to give them the autonomy for that we just want them to understand what they're going through and how to create a, a an athlete that stays in lifelong and that's the initial intent now, um, once they actually do all the paperwork, they become an affiliate. They got on our, our website, and we actually have uh, a website that shows the, the maps and all the different ones that are plugged in that have been affiliated, um, that have been approved. And if, say, have a veteran shows up in um, Miami, well, okay, we have this school, this school, this school, this school, this school. We suggest go trying them out. They're all approved. Find the place that's comfortable for you. Go at it. We'll take care of the rest. So then we the um, the athlete um, applies online, sends in a DD-214, their, their veteran paperwork showing that they're, they're combat disabled up to a certain percentage. And we pair them up with a school nearby where they can train. If they have those five schools, they take the pick. We, we allow them to go. They get two geese, belt um rash guard and yeah two each belts and a rash guard um so they have a basic um setup to start training and it's for the school owners honestly it's a win-win because Kidding, all you're yeah. doing is you're 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 getting free advertising doing a great yeah. thing for veterans and we're yeah. paying for it so we do have a cap i think it's a hundred and sixty dollars so there are some places like in New York, you know, where it's like $380 a month or something like that. We tell them ahead of time, we, we can't afford that. If you'd be okay. And we haven't had any issues so far. Someone saying, no, 
we're only getting paid this. To be honest with you, it's not really the top person we want to be around. But, you know, Marcelo Garcia, you know, um, in, in that area, really expensive, you know, in New York, especially that area. Yeah. Um, but in California as well, high rates. But everyone's been been so easy to, to get along with. They're like, no, no, we'll take care of it. It's not a big deal. You know, the one thing we ask is, you know, they have our own geese. Can you, you know, no problem. We'll pay, pay for that and be good. So we're very easy to work with them. And we want to make sure it's a successful program so that the school can also gain a lifelong um, athlete that stays with them as long as they can. Now, we don't always have a success story within jiu-jitsu. But what I've seen is that 80% of the people that do leave jiu-jitsu are finding something else that they're, they're, they're happy and excited about to be into. One person just recently, you know, I love the jiu-jitsu. It, it, just, it just didn't click, but I got into weightlifting and, you know, I've been to the gym. I go to the gym twice a day now. I want to get into, you know, competing and, and, and bodybuilding or powerlifting, whatever it is. Awesome. 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 It's, it's a path to something. And, and that is exactly the, the interim goal is to make sure that you're on a path, a healthy path, long-term. Beautiful, man. What are some of the hopes and dreams you guys have for the organization? Maybe where I'd like to see maybe in five years or plans that you guys do have like on the shelf that like, you know, and with nonprofit, you know, uh, as you already know, like I run one, two, and funding. Yes. That's an issue. If you have money in the pocket, sweet, we can do all kinds of stuff. But that, you know, it's a big challenge. But yeah, what are some of the hopes and dreams? So many. <laughs> um, for me, um, I've been in 2017, I went to England and I linked up with Sam Sheriff, who's a Royal Marine Commando in the, uh, in the British uh, Marines. And I was able to to set up a Weedify mirror image that they run. I just showed them how we were doing it, and they started Reorg Jiu-Jitsu Foundation. And I saw that. I started following them, as a matter of fact. Phenomenal guys, through and through. Honestly, one of the most down-to-earth people you ever meet. So passionate about what he does. It gives me goosebumps talking about it. Awesome. Love that guy to death. Um, Mark Armrod is another one. Uh, ironically, Sam Sheriff is a uh, Royal Marine Commando, and Mark Armrod was a Royal Marine Commando as well, and he's a triple amputee. So we have the Americans, myself being a black belt, full-bodied, and then Joey, triple amputee. The British ones, they have able-bodied black belt, and then a triple amputee, which is odd. What are the odds? But they started their program and just catapulted so fast. It was amazing to watch. And they're still doing amazing. They're doing it so much that they're actually spreading around. They call it Reorg Charity now, so they can actually donate to other nonprofits. Mm -hmm. it, it's just phenomenal. That influence got to Australia. Scott Steer is um, the man that's running veterans grappling for Australian veterans. So for me... You know, which was a, a mirror image of Weedify. Um, I got to talk to them, get that set up. So the next thing is is trying to get Canada set up. And so for me, it's it's more different things of, you know, how else can we spread this around? Um, I, I'd like to get into, you know, the uh, 
this way of growth, not just within the United States, but all veterans um, can benefit from this. So um, the big term goal is trying to get into every jujitsu school so we don't have a limitation on where we can send athletes. Yeah. You know, um, and trying to get involved into, you know, helping other nonprofits grow as well. We just did a, a collaboration with uh, Wounded Warrior Project just this week. And everyone is so tied in. It's it's incredible once you kind of get in and fuse together, you know, the, the possibilities of networking that comes out of it. It's, I love this environment. I, I love, you know, the, the, the nonprofit mentality of, you know, where your purpose is to help those in need. I don't find there's any greater purpose than that. And to find other people that have that same, that same drive, that same passion is, is where I want to plug myself in. And I want to have more people like that, regardless of what they're doing, but just be involved in that community. So that can help other people, maybe not even just veterans, but maybe other things as well. There's so many different things. I, I, I mean, off the top of my head, you know, sexual assault organizations. Um, you know, I, I was, I'm still trying to get involved with uh, the MMIW, which is the, the murder of missing indigenous women. I mean, jujitsu, self-defense, situational awareness. How beneficial would that be? Absolutely. You know, that's a, that would that would that's exactly what they need to start out with. Prevent the problem versus reacting to the problem. Um. So for me personally, spreading the word. With with involvement, in Weedify, growing it to to every jiu-jitsu gym being being Weedify, um, being able to start camps maybe and tournaments and you know, however else we can get on board, you know, getting onto the military installations before they get out, letting them know, hey, th this is something. If you're feeling this way, you know, eliminating that stigma of the PTS, you're not weak. You need therapy. Get it, and and accept it that that's going to make you better. But the stigma, believe it or not, is still attached to, to mental health. That you're if you need therapy, you're a weak person, or mm -hmm. you know, shut up and just and just drive on, you know, you stop being a pussy. That's the worst thing you could do because all you're doing bottling up and those irrational thoughts, you will rationalize them. That's the worst thing that can happen. Once those irrational thoughts become rational, that's how you spiral down into that that deep abyss that you won't be able to call yourself out. And I've been there, I know exactly what it's like it's reality. It's something that you can see, that you can feel, that you you can understand, but it's irrational. But you rationalize it so it does make sense. And that becomes your reality. And so those self-hating thoughts, those those things that, you know, that beat you down, that you are creating, you need to get that, that, that has to be eliminated. And this, I feel, is, is it's not the way, but is definitely a way, and a way that's been very successful. Absolutely. One of the things that one of the approaches we have with the Jiu-Jitsu Tribe is the mental health approach we do. I did a pilot a few years ago. We did a partnership with this behavior center called Resilient Health in, in Phoenix. So we sponsored like 10 kids, uh, five for the, the kids class, five for the teens, kids with anxiety disorder, depression, and so forth. And it had like incredible result. And the only issue was logistics because the center is kind of far. So most of the kids and a lot of the families uh, can't afford classes. So they're a little, little too far. So that was kind of rough. And so the idea worked well, but decided to 
So they okay, we need to figure something out. So one of the things that I do hear from people, maybe you're listening for the first time, I've been a tournament promoter for 25 years, the Arizona Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu League. So I started to connect with instructors that want to be a part of this program that um, we partnered up with behavioral uh, centers and they give some of the some of the kids that could be potential for the class and say that, hey, it's a six month sponsorship. We give the gi three months, you check in, make sure that, you know, they enjoy the class, everything's going. After six months, we decide, do you want to renew? Does the kid wants to train? So a lot of the improvements have been incredible. So now we're just being more active doing those partnerships. And then the idea is eventually to get to other states. So the same thing you mentioned to other behavior centers that want to utilize jiu-jitsu as a personal and social development tool. So if we can, so the idea is start in Arizona, keep spreading out. We ask the coaches, like, it's just one. If you want to do more, you can do more, but at least one student. So if in Arizona nowadays, man, I came here, there was in 2000, there was like six schools or, or seven. Now it is over a hundred, literally, maybe close to 150. So if each one can help one kid, kids with the suicidal tendencies and everything, and it can just sponsor one kid, man, it's awesome. So that's basically what we're trying to do, try to partner up with more behavior centers that we can do this uh, this partnership. So this is one aspect of Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, and the other one is sustainability to Jiu-Jitsu. Those social projects that offer martial arts, that many of them offer different classes, but they offer Jiu-Jitsu as well. And then we help with sustainability with that could be with mats, geese, or even coaches that teach for free in many programs. We have we have one school that support in Africa, one in the United States, and the rest in Brazil. The reason why there's not many in social projects in the United States as far as jiu-jitsu related. But our goal is to be able to help actually the coaches, many programs, and because a lot of people say, like, I need to get another job or I, I just can't. And being able to, if we can compensate a little bit, the coach, most of them are volunteers, but especially in Brazil, they're volunteers that already have barely, barely for themselves. And there's times that they just can't really pay the bills and then the program is over. And you see how many high, and I'm, I'm, this is not the goal, but it's just saying like the social transformation of how many high level competitors you've heard that came from like social projects in Brazil that had nothing. And then jujitsu was the, gave him that hope of traveling, competing. Now they live abroad and many of them live in the United States. They run a successful school in Europe and Australia, everywhere. So not just because of competition. Competitions, of course, is a it's a great way, but it's just a way to, of course, this personal and social uh, development. That we, I was in Brazil a couple months ago. Uh, we were shooting some documentaries, just visiting some of the impoverished communities and the impact of jiu-jitsu in those communities. Like one day, we uh, that would be the first episode that we're finishing editing right now. It was all drug-related, from drug addiction to like drug trafficking with drug dealers, former drug dealers that jiu-jitsu, and now the dude is a, uh, it's, uh, an instructor that like, changed his life around. He was from that neighborhood and then became an example. So that's one way 
It doesn't mean that they're competing, but they're changing like completely. So we have different topics from special needs to competition, mental health. So we always we interview one uh, the coach and usually two stories that could be the 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 parent or or the person being introduced. So the idea is to keep spreading. The same thing you said, you know, like supporting organizations. And if it's jujitsu, cool, awesome. You mentioned I interview um, a month ago. Uh, uh, Christina, she is uh, the co-founder of a new grip. It's for human trafficking survivors and in, and sexually um, abused too. And so implemented a jiu-jitsu program for these women. So that's kind of like incredible organization. They just started maybe two years ago. And that's a way that it's implementing uh, jiu-jitsu to, uh, to the program. So um, more we can spread, and that's the idea of having, like, like having you to be here to talking about with the Five Foundation. Say, like, man, support a uh, an organization coming from Brazil. I've lived 24 years of my life in Brazil, 24 in the United States now, and coming from a third world country, I don't know what some of those places would be without nonprofit organizations, you know, and including U.S. to the incredible work that nonprofit organizations do around the world. And because you're not always, I don't want to get uh, crazy, but we cannot really rely all on in, in, uh, politicians and so forth. So we need to get, you know, like people to get together to take action. So I'm so, so glad to learn more about it. And for sure, after I want to, I want to see how my academy, GD Jiu Jitsu Academy can be involved with the fight too. It would be, it would be incredible. Yeah, there was that, that first point. So I got to go back to that. If you could sponsor one, one person. There was an interesting article that I read. The number one type of health and fitness gyms in the U.S. right now are jujitsu gyms. Hmm. More than the 24 Fitness, more than the Lifetime Golds, those things. More than that. So take that number, right? In one year, sponsor one person. That would be thousands. Thousands in, in, in one year. Those thousands, you can at least guarantee... 50% of them will talk to their friends about it. Mm -hmm. And 20% of those 50% will, will actually take their word and try it. Out of that 20%, maybe 10% will stay. But that's off that first year. That second year, thousands more plus that 10%. Yeah, the compound so, effect. Yeah, yeah a compound, absolutely, that 1% rule. That's a brilliant idea because everyone, you know what? I could do one. You get the word out enough. Absolutely. That's going to be nationwide. That's brilliant. That's a great yeah. idea to start with. Yeah. So uh how can people learn more about it? We're gonna post all the you know, all the links and everything besides the pot uh, the 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 website, um Instagram. What is the best way to learn more about it to get involved for school? And we do have a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, that listen to the podcast, meaning not just jujitsu school owners, but business owners that maybe, you know what, I want to donate, I want to get involved. So what's the best way? Best way actually has our website, uh, has everything, all the information, all the contacts for who you need to get involved in. That's at uh, www.wedefyfoundation.org. Um, we're also on Instagram, wedefyfoundation.org, um, or at wedefyfoundation. Um, Facebook, same. We at Five Foundation. Um, those are 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 LinkedIn as well. 
take that back. We just actually um, built that up. So we're on all the social media platforms, uh, Facebook and Instagram, probably the, the two top ones if you reach that, uh, if you don't go to the website. But the website is a clear path to everything and anything you have questions on and all the contact lists that you need. Um, regarding like sponsors, always looking for that, always trying to get more people involved in one way or the other. It doesn't always have to be monetarily. Um, it could be, you know, through marketing or, you know, however they feel that it can help. We're always up to listening um, and, and trying to combine, you know, different organizations together and, and partner up to, to grow um, without stepping on anyone else's toes. And so those would be the, the main methods is through the website uh, at, um, at WeDefyFoundation.org um, and on the social media platforms to, to actually get there. Beautiful, dude, man. Congratulations uh, to you and your team for this beautiful work and spreading. I love the idea of going to different countries, too. And so you know that little by little, you guys put in a seed, you know, what they're going to do with it. You know, but at least you just just starting this, like you said, it was just starting from someone just just being curious of how I'm going to help this dude. You know what I mean? Like how I'm going to try to implement jujitsu with him, do what he can, and then what became it that's that's incredible man i appreciate it very much i'll just uh stick around for uh, a couple of minutes just i uh, got some some uh catch up with you and man uh thank you so much and one more time congratulations thank you sir appreciate it let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with professor alan shabaro a fourth degree jiu-jitsu black belt. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram or any other platform, Alan is a decorated military veteran, co-founder of the nonprofit We Defy Foundation, and a dedicated coach who has made a significant impact in the martial arts community. Defy means to challenge, resist, or oppose something or someone. It can also refer to having the courage to go against conventional expectations or norms. In the context of We Defy Foundation, the word defy may be interpreted as challenging the limitations that disability can impose on individuals and resisting the negative impact that combat trauma can have on mental health and well-being. The foundation founded in 2014 aims to help disabled combat veterans overcome these challenges through jiu-jitsu training and community support, empowering them to defy the odds and live full, meaningful lives. The We Defy Foundation is committed to providing disabled combat veterans the tools they need to overcome physical and mental barriers. Through its jiu-jitsu program, the foundation helps veterans build confidence, increase physical activity, and reduce the risk of depression and isolation. The foundation also provides scholarships for veterans to train at affiliated jiu-jitsu gyms and covers the cost of training and equipment. Their impact is reflected in key metrics demonstrating their mission's incredible reach and effectiveness. For example, in 2022 alone, We Define Foundation raised over $800,000 to support its programs and initiatives. These funds have provided over 780 athlete scholarships to disabled veterans, covering the cost of training and equipment at affiliated jiu-jitsu gyms. The We Defy Foundation has partnered with over 600 affiliate gyms over 46 states, two U.S. territories, and Japan. This extensive network of gyms has enabled the foundation to expand its reach and provide jiu-jitsu training to more disabled veterans than ever before. 
these key metrics represent the remarkable impact of the We Define Foundation on the lives of disabled combat veterans. Their commitment to providing jiu-jitsu training and community support has helped hundreds of veterans finding healing purpose and belonging. The foundation's success in raising funds, providing scholarships, and partnering with gyms is a testament to the power of its mission and the importance of community in the lives of veterans. The stories of individual veterans impacted by jiu-jitsu are truly inspiring, especially Joey Bozik, who went to look for self-defense classes for his daughter at Allen's gym, as he described in the interview, and eventually Joey and Allen co-founded with the Found Foundation. In 2000, Joey Bozik enlisted in the Army and was stationed with the 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. After serving six years, he sustained a severe injuries from an IED, improvised explosive device, while deployed in Iraq, losing both his legs and right arm below the elbow. Joey was recognized for his bravery and service with a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. After transitioning back to civilian life, Joey pursued a degree in psychology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, focusing on forensic psychology. Following graduation, he worked as a computer forensic analyst for the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, Child Exploitation Division. Co-founding the We Defy Foundation was a natural extension of Joey's own experience with the transformative power of martial arts for disabled combat veterans. He has been training jiu-jitsu under Professor Alan Shabaro since 2014. Joey has lost 35 pounds through his jiu-jitsu training and transitioned from using a wheelchair to becoming an active jiu-jitsu competitor. His journey is a testament to the life-changing benefits of martial arts and the resilience of the human spirit. The We The Five Foundation is an incredible example of the power of jiu-jitsu and the community to transform lives. Through their commitment to helping disabled combat veterans, they have created a legacy that will continue to impact lives for years. Their mission is a testament to the healing power of jiu-jitsu and the importance of community in the lives of veterans. If you want to get involved or donate, please visit www.withdefyfoundation.com. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.